This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands have just marked for salvation. Morning, church family. If you are experiencing from joy from being in the house of the Lord, give me an amen. amen. Two quick, uh, two, so good to see you, and, and for those joining online, it's good to see you as well. Uh, two quick things before I begin. Um, number one, just a big thank you to Marlene. Um, among the most amazing women of faith that we know, uh, her stories are among the most amazing stories uh, of any missionary I know. You will be blessed by joining us uh, after the Saturday night service on June 19th. Come in here, Marlene. But thank you again for your faithful service. Um, also, big thank you and shout out to Pastor Reese and all of the high school students uh, for the amazing job in leading us last weekend. I was just incredibly blessed. Yeah. Incredibly blessed by your leadership. Um, thank you for allowing God to use you as he did last weekend. Uh, church, I know just having talked to you how, um, how many of you were also blessed last weekend by them. And, and if you enjoyed last weekend, I want to make a special encouragement to again join us this evening at 6 p.m. for the Senior Blessing Night. Uh, give us an opportunity to bless them in return. Um, church family, you have poured into them. You have prayed for them. You have served and been served by them. You have seen them grow up in front of you. Um, so come join us and celebrate tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, come watch a whole bunch of us cry. In several sermons this year, I have mentioned my deep fondness for the series The Chosen, which is a fictionalized account of the life of Jesus. I know many of you are great fans of that as well. And one of the reasons The Chosen has quickly become a favorite of many Christians is because of its portrayal of Jesus. Many movies have depicted the suffering of Jesus, but very few have shown the humanity of Jesus the way that The Chosen does. We see Jesus laugh. We see him tell jokes. We see the, the deep compassion in his eyes as he's ministering to people. One of Lake City's members, Peter Johnson, expressed it best when he described the chosen in this way. Peter said, this is the first time that I've seen Jesus portrayed on film as a man that I would drop everything for and follow. For many people, the chosen depicts this Jesus that aligns with our personal perspective of what Jesus must have been like. But therein lies this interesting issue. We love seeing a, a loving Jesus, a kind Jesus, a compassionate Jesus. Right? We would drop everything to follow such a God. But how do we react when Jesus seemingly behaves in a manner that goes against what we think he would do? This weekend, we continue our sermon series, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind, a journey in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as told through the Gospel of Mark. And today, we're going to see the end of chapter 7, and we're going to examine two scenes of healing. And the first of these two scenes, the first of these two scenes is among the most seemingly troubling scenes in all the Bible. And I think in seeing the contrast between these two scenes of healing, we're going to learn a few things about Jesus. We're going to learn how we ought to respond when we don't understand. And so let's wrestle with this text together. It's Mark chapter 7. 
And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, well, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. If you joined us last week, Pastor Reese shared an anecdote about his football coach always asking the players, what's the context? And context is always important when we're trying to understand something. And that's especially true when studying difficult passages like we're studying today. So here's the context for the verses that we're looking at together. So two weeks ago, Pastor Jim walked us through at the end of chapter uh, six, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And these miracles in chapter six, they took place near the cities of Bethsaida and a city called Gennesaret, which was a small city in between Capernaum and Magdala, where a lot of Jesus's teaching was, was around the Sea of Galilee. And so that was also the location of the first half of chapter seven. So what Reese taught on last week also occurred in this region. Now, verse 24 tells us that today's verses, Jesus and his disciples went from here all the way up to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon, they're coastal cities in this region called Syrophoenicia. And that's about, again, 50 miles north of where they'd been. This is the farthest north that we have seen Jesus at this point in the Gospel of Mark. And when Jesus arrived, the Bible tells us that he came there and he tried to keep a low profile. That didn't work. Verse 25 says almost immediately, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, heard that he was there, and came and fell down at his feet. Right? Like so often throughout our study of Mark, desperate people, desperate people, people that are struggling, when they heard that Jesus was in town, they went to find him and they came to him. And this woman, this one was desperate. Right? Desperate. Her daughter was possessed by a demon. It wasn't something that the local doctors or the local religious leaders could fix. And so this desperate woman, she comes to Jesus and she falls at his feet. And as she's on the ground at the, at the feet of Jesus, and she's begging him to cast out this demon from his daughter, from her daughter. Now the whole scene is told in Mark, Matthew chapter 15 as well. And Matthew includes a few more details that Mark doesn't. But Matthew tells us what she actually said to Jesus as she begged was this, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This was a woman who knew something about who he was. She called him Lord. She called him son of David. But she fell at his feet in worship and, and addressed him with titles of respect. And how did Jesus respond all to this respect? And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Mark actually omitted a few details. Matthew describes the scene like this. 
But he, Jesus, did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Mark's account tells us Jesus responded to this desperate woman's begging with this statement about children and bread and dogs. Matthew tells us that Jesus ignored her begging, did not answer her a word. And then as she continued crying, the disciples said, Just, can you send her away? Because her wailing is going to draw unwanted attention. And this woman kept begging and said, Lord, help me. And then Jesus responds again with this, this statement about children and bread and dogs. Is this still the kind of Jesus we would drop everything for to follow? Yeah, yes. This is still the Jesus that we should drop everything for to follow. And we're going to see that as we unpack these verses a bit. But you can see why this passage troubles so many people. Where is Jesus' servant heart in this? His actions seem so uncharacteristic of what we think Jesus would be like. And so as we wrestle with this text together, um, I want to name what I think our big concerns are and then address those concerns with what I believe the Bible is actually telling us about what's going on here. Because here's concern number one. Jesus seemed mean. Jesus seemed mean. But as we read the Gospels, we develop this image of a loving, kind, compassionate Jesus. A Jesus so gentle, he told adults, let the little children come to me. A Jesus so compassionate, he would touch a leper when other people would not. And yet here, Jesus seems to have insulted this desperate woman by calling her a dog. How do we make sense of this? Well, first, we need a better understanding of Jesus' actual words. Back then, the word dog was often used as an insult by Jewish people towards Gentiles. But whenever it is used as an insult in the New Testament, the Greek word that's used is the Greek word kuon. That's not the word Jesus used in Mark and in Matthew. Jesus used a variant of the word kuon, kunarion. Kuon meant wild dog. That's the insult. Kunarion could be translated as little dog or even puppy. Kunarion right? referred to domesticated pets. And so if we view Jesus as being mean because we thought he was using this derogatory slur dog towards this woman, we just need to recognize he didn't use that word. He used a kinder version of that word. Now, you might be saying, well, that only makes it slightly better. He still called her a dog, which doesn't seem so nice. And my second response is we need a better understanding of how metaphors work. Let's examine Jesus' metaphor here. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, we actually, to understand this verse, with that, we need actually this other key detail that we see in Matthew chapter 15. And in Matthew 15, uh, verse 24, it, Jesus tells his disciples what his primary mission was on earth. Matthew says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
So when you combine these two verses, here's how to understand this metaphor, church. What Jesus was saying is that his primary mission when he was physically on earth, his primary mission was to draw God's people, the Israelites, to God. And because his time on, on earth physically was short, that any time spent away from that primary mission, the mission was going to compromise the mission. But if your primary mission was to feed your hungry children, well, it kind of, kind of compromises that mission if you take the bread that you had just baked and gave it to the family pet. That's the metaphor that Jesus used. And so why this metaphor is troubling to us is what we do with this metaphor is instead of focusing on the main points of the metaphor, we break it down into individual pieces. And then we do a point-to-point -point comparison of each individual piece. And so in our minds, we say, well, okay, children represents Israel. Jesus' mission represents bread. And pet dog represents Gentiles. And therefore, Jesus called her a dog. Right? That's our line of thought. No. That is overthinking the metaphor. We should not be focused on the individual pieces. We should rather be focused only on the metaphor's main point of comparison. Let me use another example to help understand this. So sometimes when my wife Debbie is cooking a delicious meal, she causes complete chaos in the kitchen. Right? She's running from the counter to the fridge, to the pantry, back to the counter. There's mixing bowls and utensils everywhere. Right? She's pulling things in and out of the oven. She's stirring pots and pans. She's like a bull in a china shop. Now, careful. Did I just call my wife Debbie a bull? Absolutely not. Right? Reengage 101 is never call your spouse a large animal. That's not what's happening here. I don't want anyone leaving this place and going out and telling Debbie I just called her a bull. That's not the comparison. Did I say that her running movements are like the running movements of a bull? No, I didn't say that either. The comparison I made in using this metaphor is that the chaos caused by Debbie's delicious cooking is similar to the chaos caused by a bull running around in a china shop. The metaphor's main object of comparison was not Debbie equals bull. It was chaos equals chaos. And in the case of the metaphor used by Jesus here, the main object of the metaphor was not Israel equals children or Gentiles equal dogs. The main point of the metaphor is taking time away from his primary mission was equal to taking bread from a child. That's the main point of the metaphor. It was not about insulting Gentiles. It was, focus, it was about focusing on his primary mission. This isn't even the first time that Jesus was laser focused on what his mission was. Several times in the Gospels, for example, we read that uh, the people were so enamored by what Jesus was doing, they wanted to make him king right away. And because being king wasn't quite his primary mission, Jesus used to escape the crowds. So they couldn't do it. Right? So focused on what he came to do. And so as much as Jesus had this servant heart toward this desperate woman, he also had a kingdom mindset that he needed to focus on. And he conveys this kingdom mindset through this metaphor. So if our concern is that Jesus seemed mean 
you know, because of what he was saying, we could, that, that concern can be addressed by recognizing our limited understanding of his words and our limited understanding of how metaphors work. Jesus was not being mean. Well, if he wasn't being mean, the second concern is, if he wasn't mean, he at least, he at least seemed uncaring. Right? Again, in our minds, this image of a loving, kind, compassionate Jesus Right, the kind of Jesus, like the, the father of the prodigal son who kept watch for his son and saw him returning and ran out to overwhelm him with love. Right, that's our picture of God. And here Jesus seemed to ignore the cries of a desperate woman who is trying to get help for her little girl. And so how do we make sense of this? Well, one of the ways that we as human beings demonstrate love towards one another is when we go out of our way to meet a person's need when the situation demands it. I mean, raise your hands. How many of you would jump in a car right now and drive to visit your best friend if they called you and said they needed you at their side right now? Raise your hand if you would just jump in a car right now and see them. Now, keep your hands up. If you would drive two hours to go love on your friend, raise your hand. Six hours. Would you drive 12 hours to meet your friend if they said that they needed you right now? Right? When we love... When someone that we love needs us, time and distance are barely an inconvenience, right? We would gladly do whatever we needed to do to be at their side, to love them. Let's go back to the context of where this scene takes place. The Bible tells us it takes place in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so they had been here and they went up here, which is again about 50 miles distance. Back then at a normal pace, you could go from here to here in about 12 or 13 hours on foot. Now, ordinarily, they'd only travel about 20 miles a day, so this, tip, this trip likely took two days to go from here to here. There's one additional detail about this region that we need to know. Syrophoenicia, Tyre, Syrophoenicia was a Gentile region. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. No Jewish person would have gone 50 miles towards Gentile land without an incredibly important reason to do so. Do you know what happened after Jesus healed this woman's daughter? He doesn't stay in this region. He actually goes in the, the second scene of healing that we're going to see today happens in this region, the Decapolis. So yeah, it's actually closer back to where he had come. Do you know what that verse is telling us then? These verses are telling us that Jesus traveled 50 miles, traveled two days to go to a region that a Jewish person wouldn't go to, laid low until this Gentile woman found him, healed her daughter, and they went back the way that he had came. Which means the only reason that Jesus had gone to this region at all was to heal this, daughter, this woman's daughter. Tell me again how you think that Jesus was uncaring. My favorite episode of season one of The Chosen is the last episode of the season. And it tells the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And this outcast Samaritan woman with a checkered past, she can't believe that Jesus had chosen her to be the first person that he revealed that he was Messiah. And she says to Jesus, you picked the wrong person. And Jesus responds to her, I came to Samaria just to meet you. Do you think it's an accident that I'm here in the middle of the day? 
In this sweet moment, Jesus revealed to her how much he actually cared for her, right? By the intentionality of his action. He had come all the way to see her. He wasn't in Samaria by accident. And neither was Jesus in Syrophoenicia by accident. He had come all the way for her and her daughter. So our second concern can be addressed by recognizing the extent to which Jesus went out of his way to show her his love. He was not uncaring. Well, if he wasn't mean and he wasn't uncaring, well, our third concern is at least that Jesus seemed to be discriminating, specifically against Gentiles. Right? Loving, kind, compassionate Jesus. That's who we think he is. The Jesus who didn't treat the Samaritan woman like an outcast, even though everyone else did. Yet here, Jesus ignored a desperate woman's pleading, specifically because she was a Gentile. He even said to his disciples, no, my mission is just for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so how do we make sense of this? Again, I'll respond with a couple of ways. Number one, I'll point out again that Jesus did go out of his way to travel to a Gentile region to heal a Gentile woman's daughter. If he'd been discriminating against Gentiles, he wouldn't even be in Syrophoenicia. Second, this isn't even the first time that he did that. A few weeks ago, I preached on a passage in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus went to Gentile territory to heal a Gentile man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. So the healing of this woman's daughter was the second time Jesus had traveled a long distance to heal a Gentile. And then third, the second healing scene that we're going to study today was in the Decapolis area which also happened, again, to be Gentile territory. So in these verses that we're reading today, Jesus went out of his way to go to Gentile land to heal a Gentile woman, and then went out of his way to go to Gentile land to heal a Gentile man. Right? Not the actions of someone who's discriminating against Gentiles. It begs the question, then, why did Jesus tell the disciples that his mission was to minister to the lost sheep of Israel? Why bother making that statement if he's going to ignore it a few seconds later? Well, I think his statement actually does a couple of things. Number one, his statement implied that while his primary mission was to Israelites, it wasn't exclusively to Israelites. I believe when Jesus made the statement that he was sent for lost sheep, and then he goes and heals this woman's daughter, he was letting his disciples know this critical point that Gentiles were also part of the lost sheep to whom he was sent to rescue. How do we know this? In the first half of chapter 7, the verses that Reese taught on last week, religious leaders had seen Jesus and his disciples, and some of his disciples didn't properly wash their hands before they ate. And so these religious leaders, they asked Jesus why that was the case. And Jesus rebuked them for their hypocrisy. And then Jesus corrected their understanding of what ultimately made people unclean. Jesus said it wasn't about eating kosher food. It wasn't about following specific hand-washing rituals. Right? Nothing external could make a person unclean. No, it was what came from inside. Inside was what made a person unclean. The heart determined that. So what kinds of people didn't eat kosher food back then? Gentiles. What kinds of people didn't ceremonially wash their hands? Gentiles. 
Who did Jewish people routinely call unclean? Gentiles. So when Jesus was telling these Pharisees that their understanding of what, un, what made someone unclean was, un, was untrue, he was telling them that their understanding of who the Gentiles were were also untrue. By teaching the Pharisees that food and hand washing had nothing to do whether a person was unclean, Jesus was making this larger point about faith, that Gentiles as a whole were not automatically unclean. And that anyone... Jew or Gentile, with a proper heart attitude, was clean, was part of his people, could be part of his kingdom. It is not coincidence that after teaching this thing about uncleanness to the, people, to the religious leaders and his disciples, that he followed that up by going to two different Gentile regions and healing two different Gentiles. Right? He was demonstrating to them so that they could understand that some of the lost sheep that Jesus had come to save were Gentiles. That's the message of the kingdom of God. And this is consistent with the message of Scripture, that Gentiles had always been part of God's plans to redeem the world. Romans chapter 9, Paul addressed the church in Rome about God's plans of redemption, and Paul wrote this, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is saying that both Jews and Gentiles were vessels of God's mercy, prepared beforehand, had been part of God's plan from the very beginning. Paul then went on to quote from the prophet Hosea, and Paul wrote this, as indeed God says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who, her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Right? Those who are not my people, I will call my people. More than 700 years before the birth of Christ, God had spoken through Hosea and gave a hint to the fact that Gentiles were part of his people, part of his kingdom part of his plan to redeem the world. Church, that is great news for us today. But we as Gentiles are the intended target of the kingdom message of salvation. We as Gentiles are part of his plans for redemption. Right? We may not have been part of Jesus' primary mission when he was on earth, but we are certainly beneficiaries of that mission. And so our third concern that Jesus seemed to be discriminating against Gentiles can be addressed by recognizing the actual truth that Jesus' teachings and his actions revealed the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom message had always been part of the plan. So with those concerns now addressed, this scene then focuses on what the main point of this scene actually was. And the main point of this scene is the amazing faith of this desperate Gentile woman. You know, we, we read into Jesus' metaphor improperly, and we're offended by it. But this woman who heard this message was not offended by it. In fact, she understood this metaphor and even used the metaphor back at Jesus. Right? She said back to Jesus, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Instead of being offended, 
She revealed the deep faith that she had. She believed that even the smallest pieces of Jesus' power, just the crumbs of his power, could heal her daughter. Mark downplays Jesus' response to this woman. Verse 29 in, in Mark says, Jesus said, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. But Matthew reveals that Jesus also said to her, Oh woman, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Matthew revealed that Jesus commended her for her faith. Oh, great is her faith. Only two people in the, in the Gospels were commended by Jesus for their faith. A Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8 and this woman. Note, by the way, that those two people were both Gentiles. This woman understood Jesus' heart, understood his mission, understood his intention. And because she understood the message of the kingdom of God, her daughter healed, her faith commended. How great is her faith? This Gentile woman's faith models for us what our response ought to be to God when we're seeking him during our times of suffering and desperation. Right When we're hurting, when we're going through something awful, far too often our default mode is to question what we know about God. Right When we're going through hard times, we say to ourselves, you know, maybe God isn't good. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't want to heal me. Maybe God can't heal me. I confess, I've had times in my life where I actually asked God in direct prayer why he was being so mean to me. But it's in seasons like this that God reveals our lack of faith, is what it really is. Christian musician Jonathan Helser put it this way, the wilderness has a way of revealing what you really believe about God. What it reveals is we lack faith. This Gentile woman models for us a faithful response. She doesn't question his character. She doesn't question his intentions. She doesn't question his power. No, she trusted in who Jesus was and leaned into him even more. And so too should we, in moments where we're, we may be tempted to question or to despair, not do that. Trust him instead. Lean into him even more. Beloved, never, never doubt God's goodness, never. Never doubt his intentions, never. God was, God is, God will always be the God who redeems you in your times of desperation. Trust him. Missionary Elizabeth Elliot put it this way, of one thing I am perfectly sure, that God's story, it never ends with ashes. Bible says, and those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Trust him, church. After healing this faithful woman's daughter, Jesus, he headed back to the Sea of Galilee for the second of our two healings. And this is what the Bible says. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. 
And so taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So after going two days journey to heal this Gentile woman's daughter, he returned to the Sea of Galilee. And he headed to the east side of the sea, which again was Gentile territory. And he was in a crowd and some Gentiles brought to him a man who was deaf and had problems speaking. Now the ESV uses the term speech impediment, but most translations use the phrase, he spoke with difficulty. That means he had a physical problem that made it difficult for him to properly speak. It's why Jesus touched his tongue to heal it. And so Jesus, he took this man aside and he took him away from the crowds to have this private moment with him. And the Bible says that he, Jesus, he put his fingers, his, Jesus' fingers, into the man's ears. And then after spitting, he touched the man's tongue. And then looking up to heaven, Jesus, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And the man was healed, right? Began to hear, began to speak. And so overjoyed was he by this miraculous healing that he and his friends, they went around and they told everyone what had just happened. Right? Jesus telling them to stop, that wasn't enough. They were so overjoyed they could barely contain themselves. Now, when you read these two scenes of healing back to back, the immediate question that comes to my mind is, why did Jesus treat those two people so differently? Right? The only thing that they had in common was they were both Gentiles. But in this first scene, Jesus ignored the woman's pleas for a second. But in the second scene, he healed the man right away. In the first scene, it causes us to question Jesus' character. Not so in the second scene. Why this contrast in these two scenes of healing? And I think it demonstrates this important fourth faith uh, uh, point, beloved. That Jesus, he meets us in unique ways. Jesus meets us in unique ways. It's not just these two scenes that are so different. Look at all the scenes in the Gospels. And in some scenes, Jesus, he touched the person to heal them. In other scenes, he just spoke a word and they were healed. In some scenes, people brought the person to Jesus. And then in other scenes, like today in the Syrophoenician woman, he came to her. In some scenes, it's just a physical healing. And then in other scenes, it's a physical and an emotional and a spiritual healing. Yeah, there's a difference between these two scenes, but there's a difference in lots of scenes. Because Jesus viewed every single person as unique. And therefore, he was going to treat them in unique ways. Because every person was unique, he was going to treat them in unique ways. And the variety of ways that we see Jesus ministering to people, it makes this even more important point. He not only meets us in unique ways, but Jesus meets us in the way that we need to be met. He meets us in the way that we need to be met. Why do you think Jesus 
touched this man's ear and then touched his tongue, why not just simply say, be healed? Because the man was deaf and he couldn't have understood that. It's also the reason that Jesus looked up to heaven when he said and prayed. Right? Jesus was being extra demonstrative with his physical motion. Jesus wanted the man to see, I'm going to heal your ears, and then I'm going to heal your mouth, and it's coming with power from above. Jesus indicated all these things in a way that the deaf man could understand and see. He met him in the way that he needed to be met. And the unique healing of this deaf man, this individualized response to what he needed, it ought to give us encouragement to trust that whatever God is doing right now in our lives, he's doing that because it's exactly how we need to be met at this time. Far too often when we are struggling and we're suffering, we compare how God is working in our life to how we think we see God working in other people's lives, right? I mean, how many times have you said, well, why isn't he doing what he's, you know, why is he not doing here what he's doing over there? Right? Why isn't God healing my marriage in the way that he's healing their marriage? God, why aren't you healing my loved one as quickly as you healed that person's loved one? God, why are you so silent to my prayers, but you answer that person's prayers left and right? God, why are you letting me suffer, but letting them have so much peace? Right? When we're suffering, our default reaction is to question God's goodness, question his character, question his intentions, because we don't understand what's going on. But church, know that what it, wherever you are right now, right, wherever you are right now, whatever is going on in your life, God is meeting you exactly where you need to be met. The Bible says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Trust him. Trust him. One final point. Mark goes out of his way to include the exact words that this man and his friends were telling everybody. And they said this to everyone who would listen. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Why was this so important to include? These are important words because of this. It was a testimony to who Jesus was. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the chosen one who would come to save God's people. In Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet Isaiah said this about the Messiah. He prophesied and wrote, Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, he, the Messiah, will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Messiah was prophesied to do all these miraculous healings. And that's why throughout the Bible we see him heal the blind and the lame and the deaf and the mute. Because he was fulfilling messianic prophecies in Luke chapter 7 the Bible tells us that John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he indeed was the Messiah 
And Jesus sent those disciples back to John with this message. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. Jesus affirmed to John that he was in fact the Messiah because of these miraculous works that he was doing. Including make the deaf hear. You know, we, we began these verses questioning what we know of Jesus. Right? Was he mean? Was he uncaring? Was he really worth dropping everything for to follow? And the reality is that throughout the Gospel of Mark and throughout all the Gospels, throughout the Bible, Jesus remained consistently who he is. He is the one who would bring salvation to God's people. That's who he is. You and I need never question who he is. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be the one who redeems us with amazing grace. Amen? Many of you are familiar with the testimony of John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton was raised by legalistic Puritans, and that contributed to him not having a good relationship with God growing up. And he was required to serve in the British military, but when he tried to desert, he was forced to work on slave trading ships for five years. And then he became a slave trader as a career. And in 1748, during a journey back to England, the ship that he was on encountered this storm. And he awoke in the middle of the night, and he saw the ship filling with water through this hole. And so Newton, he prayed to God for safety, and the Lord answered his prayer. And as the ship tossed and turned the ship's cargo, it shifted to cover the hole, allowing the ship to survive the storm. Newton spent the rest of that time on that trip reading the Bible, and by the time he reached England, he had given his life to Jesus Christ. He dropped everything to follow Jesus, gave up slave trading, gave up all of his other vices, became a pastor. And for a New Year's Day sermon in 1773, he wrote a sermon that included lyrics, which became Amazing Grace. Right, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is, the one who rescues wretches, the one who finds the lost, the one who heals the blind, the one who helps us see. Trust in his amazing grace, church. As we close, I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. And I'm going to ask that during this next song, respond. Respond to the leading of the Spirit. Respond to what you've heard today. Meditate on these words. Sing. Meditate on what you've seen today. Two healings. Two very different healings. But one amazing, unchanging God a God worth dropping everything for to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are unchanging. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We thank you that we can trust in you. We thank you that you are worth dropping everything for to follow. God, give us the faith to do that, to live that out always. Lord, help us to live in such a way that people are drawn to your amazing grace. We ask this in the name of Christ our King. Amen.